Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, this is Owen Jones, unless you've if you've accidentally stumbled on the wrong channel, flee for your lives. Welcome to the show. Uh, we have a very, very important show today with two absolutely brilliant guests who are very lucky to have. Now, the Metropolitan Police. Where to begin? Hmm. Well, so, let's just, just so we're not being gaslit any further, because there's quite a lot of gas. Gaslighting has become a national sport on the part of the British establishment. We've had a pandemic as you've noticed, in which tens of thousands of people have suffered terrible, avoidable deaths in many cases. Now, a series of public health measures were introduced to restrict our personal liberties in order to prevent the spread of the said deadly virus. Those measures meant that people could not hold the hands of their dying relatives. Eight million people who live alone often suffered crippling loneliness. Loved ones were separated. We could go on. The terrible social consequences uh, and we know what the police did in many cases. The police charged homeless people for breaking anti-lockdown rules. They fined children, which is actually against the law, uh, completely against the legislation itself. Uh, tens of thousands of people were fined, up to £10,000, a crippling amount of money if you're on a normal salary in this country, for hosting, including illicit parties. Now, number 10 had... Not one, not two. I don't know how many parties they had. They don't know how many parties they had, probably, because it was essentially, uh, you know, it was Hacienda on Thames, number 10. Now, there were lots of police officers stationed there. And I, I make that point because the police officers all over the country managed to go out of their way. They actually went and actively, proactively found people violating anti-lockdown uh, lockdown rules. In number 10, they were actually there. And yet... No action was obviously taken. Now, for weeks, the Metropolitan Police's official line is not enough evidence. We're not going to investigate, even though the evidence was overwhelming for weeks about these illicit parties. And then when Sue Gray, who's become the safe word of 2022, when Sue Gray has her official report, it's going to come out, then the Met decides to investigate. Oh, but there's a catch, of course, because them now investigating means that the report is essentially completely trashed because they're demanding the redaction of information pertaining to an investigation which could go on for months. That just happens to help one person above all else, Boris Johnson, a man who himself saved the job of Cressida Dick when people were demanding her removal for a whole host of reasons, including, of course, when... Metropolitan police officers essentially attacked a vigil for Sarah Everard, who, let's not forget, was killed by a Metropolitan police murderer, a, 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 an officer who murdered her 
using lockdown rules in order to do so. Now, what we're talking about today is the Metropolitan Police, and we're putting this scandal in its proper context, because the behavior of the Metropolitan Police in this particular instance needs context. And we've got two brilliant guests who have two very unique insights and experiences which will help flesh this out in detail because we need a conversation about the Metropolitan Police, about its role, and about its systemic corruption, racism, misogyny, homophobia. We could go on. The fact that it will crack down hard on poor black men in Hackney who are found to have cannabis on them, a substance which many cabinet ministers have taken and yet have not suffered life-changing convictions as a consequence. And yet, when it comes to the powerful, well, we can see how they have behaved. Now, before we bring in our first guest, as ever, if you're watching live, click on the YouTube link and press like and subscribe. Support the channel on patreon.com forward slash orangejones84. Finally, when I finish my book, which is imminent, uh, we will be doing our documentaries, which you support. We're not backed by millionaires. We're backed by you. That's how we do these shows, holding the powerful to account. And you can also support the show on Super Chat on YouTube, where you can put questions uh, to our two brilliant guests. Now, later, we're going to talk to Alistair Morgan, whose brother was murdered in a car park of a pub back in 1987. The police investigations, as a, an inquiry found, that the Metropolitan Police was guilty of institutional corruption. Now, we're going to talk about that uh, shortly. But first, we're going to bring in the brilliant Kevin Maxwell. Kevin Maxwell is a former Metropolitan Police officer. I'm going to flash up his book, which you're all going, whether you're listening, oh, I forgot the podcast. If you're listening, of course, on the podcast, do subscribe. Support us on the podcast. The podcast, obviously, a very important part of the whole show. Uh, Forced Out, a detective story of prejudice and resilience. And in that brilliant book, Kevin details his experiences, first in the Greater Manchester Police, but in the Metropolitan Police. Now I'm going to bring in Kevin now. Hey, Kevin, how are you doing? Hi, Owen. Fine, thanks. Uh, it's great to have a fellow Northerner on the show. You're, of course, from, <laughs> from Merseyside, like my late father. Um, I just want to start. So you, you've got a really fascinating story and, and a grim, let's be honest, it's a grim story. So you, you grew up in a working class estate in Toxteth in Liverpool. And you always had an interest in the police. Uh, you, you, you managed an iconic Mancunian gay club um, uh, as someone who used to work in a, on the gay scene in Manchester. So again, many, many things in common. And, and, and you wrote about how you, you know, accepted in, into the police. So you just want to tell me, because in Greater Manchester, let's start with Greater Manchester, you were one of only 40 male officers from minority background of eight out of 8,000 at the time. So you just tell me your story about how someone like yourself, a gay black man, not many of those, statistically, as we can see, uh, in the police force. How did you end up there? Um, like you say, um, I'm the last of 11 children born in um, inner city, Liverpool. Um, kids like me didn't join the police. Um, you know, young, black, uh, gay kids, um, it just wasn't heard of, especially from a northern, poor, working-class community. But I always wanted to join the police. I thought they were the good guys. You know, I joined the cadets when I was 10, uh, two cadet forces, you know, all that um, saluting the queen and the flag and all stuff like that. You know, I was a bit of a geek as a kid. And it was just a natural step. Um, 
went to Salford Uni and after managing the, um, the club you uh, referred to, I joined Greater Manchester Police. You know, within the first couple of weeks, I experienced racism and then homophobia. And it was, you know, I don't want to make out like it was every day, but it was constant. Uh, for seven years, I was in Manchester in the police force. I was actually in Manchester living there for 10 years. I decided to join the Met because the Met after Stephen Lawrence said it was going to be this forward thinking new institution. You know, it wanted people like me, you know, graduates, um, you know, open-minded, black, gay. The billboards were looking for people like me. The Met, my four years in the Met, made GMP look like kindergarten. So let's just talk through some of that because, I mean, it's a really harrowing story. And it's, by the way, Greater Manchester Police have their own, famously there. What's the, the head of the of the Greater Manchester Police? What's their title? It's not commissioner, is it? It's not the same. Uh, Chief Constable. Chief Constable. Chief Constable, infamously, had a very homophobic Chief Constable before you served who blamed gay men. He said that they were, I think, in a cesspit of their own making or something along those That's lines. That's correct. Swelling in a cesspit of their own making. That's correct. Horrific. Horrific. And that was not that long ago. In fact, they were Chief Constable till the 90s. And people have this view. This was something which distant, the distant past up to the 90s, profoundly homophobic. So let's just talk about this then. Talk about... Let's start with the homophobia. I mean, what kind of, you know, did you feel you had to hide your sexuality? Were you just open all the way through? And 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 how, you know, what sort of experience did you have? You know, um, you just mentioned that I was managing a gay club. You know, I uh, socialised in gay circles. I was an out proud uh, gay man. But when I joined the police, I felt, and it was always like a promise that I had to hide my sexuality. Um, my boyfriend at the time was a junior doctor in Manchester. You know, he used to hide in the car park over the road from the police station when he used to meet me. You know, he had problems in his own profession. But, you know, you couldn't be out and proud in the police. Um, and we're not talking, you know, 50 years ago. We're talking, you know, uh, in the uh, 21st century, at the beginning of the century, at uh, the end of the century. So, yeah, um, I was forced out. Um, I remember saying um, to um, one of my bosses at the time about homophobia, um, in the force, which the management knew because they were writing secret documents um, about me and with regards to homophobia at the station. And he you know, said something like, as a Christian, he can't condone what I do as a gay man, but as long as I'm a good cop. And that's my boss. You know, he was setting the standards for the station. It was, you know, it was baffling. And it, it was just stuff like that. You know, I thought being a black guy from Liverpool, you know, with Liverpool stereotypes was going to be enough. But being from Liverpool, black and gay, you know, it was, it was just too much for them, you know, but yet yeah, they were saying they wanted people like me. And it wasn't one day hearing about racism. It was one day hearing about homophobia. People like me just didn't exist in the police force, you know, um, black gay men. The police don't even understand what intersectionality is, you know, <laughs> it's quite sad. So before we, I'm going to talk about in terms of racism, in terms of how the Metropolitan Police engaged with black citizens of London. But let's start with yourself again. Can you just detail the kind of racism that you were subjected to and tell me, you know, what from what levels did it come? Was it obviously fellow officers, but how senior did you experience those forms of racism? You know, I don't want to make this about any individual, but this is about an institution and, you know, experiencing the same problems. But in a nutshell, you know, I served in the police for 11 years. One day I was at Heathrow Airport on duty as a detective. Um, when I collapsed, um, I went to a hospital, you know, they did checks and stuff. And it was um, established that I had reactive severe depression. And I'd been reacting all those years in Manchester and the Met 
to the uh, what I use as terms of a constant, you know, homophobia and racism. I'm not saying every day, but you know, it was a buildup of all those years, um, which I um, had acquiesced. So once the Met found out about it, you know, it wasn't about how we how can we support our opposite, the type of person we want to change this force for the uh, for the better. They set about, you know, how to uh, destroy me, and I don't say that in in a sensational way. You know, the book's highly documented. It's just under 600 references and citations. Where the Met set up a gold group at the top of Scotland Yard as to how they did, uh, how they uh, could discredit me, a black gay detective. You know, one of their own. It was baffling. And again, you know, for your audience, this is not just me saying, oh, there was a few people, you know, homophobia and racism. It's you know just in my head. You know, I took the Met to an employment tribunal to an appeal court. And they were found to have committed over 40 acts of discrimination, harassment, and victimization against me for being black and gay. They were also found guilty of leaking about me to a tabloid. We all know who the tabloid is. That was my employer. And you know, Owen, to this day, no one in the Met has ever said sorry. And the current commissioner, again, I don't want to make it about any individuals, but she was my uh, most senior direct line manager. And I document her involvement with my case in the book. So I don't want people to tell me this is 20 years ago or 10 years ago. This is current. You know, just last night I was getting on the overground. I saw three young, um, well-dressed, you know, white guys drinking alcohol um, on the uh, on the overground. Not a big issue. But uh, when I got off the overground, I saw two young black boys surrounded by eight police officers in three unmarked cars. These are the things we see every day, day in, day out on the streets of London. Now, I clearly don't know what's going on. But, you know... Public trust in the Met is, it's near, uh, you know, it's low, isn't it? You know, as a former officer of 11 years, it's, uh, you know, I'm sorry to say that, you know, I do not trust the police. I'll probably die not trusting the police. If I had a boyfriend and I was walking, you know, along the streets and we were homophobically attacked, I would not call the Metropolitan Police. Which is astonishing. You were a former serving Metropolitan Police officer. You grew up with a huge admiration for police. That's why That's why you joined. So these are not words someone chooses light, choose lightly. The fact that a former Met, someone who chose, they were, you were going to dedicate your life to being in the police force, that you wouldn't trust the police in those circumstances. That is a big, big deal. And I, and I don't say this again. I don't say this to be sensational. You know, I'm politically, I'm not on the left or the right. You know, I, I vote for, you know, who I believe is the right party. You know, I'm not anti-police. You've, you've already said, you know, I wanted to be a cop since I was five, since I got my first police bike off my, you know, late beloved mother. You know, I only wanted to be um, a police officer. For me to say those comments, which I've just said to you, it's pretty, it's pretty sad, isn't it? You know, the police don't understand the trauma they are causing to not just their own officers, but, to, you know, the people they are meant to serve. I'm, I'm working on a second book at the moment about trauma and, and the impact of it. And, you know, Owen, um, each day I have, to, I have to work on myself not to hate the police. That's a big thing. You know, I, you know, I wish no officer any ill, but, you know, when you've been impacted by trauma, you know, it takes a lot from you. And I think as a, as, as a society, we, we don't really understand the impact trauma has. And the fact that it's people who are meant to save and protect us who are causing you know, some of the trauma. In my case, they did traumatise me. Um, yeah, it's, 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 pretty, it's pretty sad. And it's a sad indictment, not just on the police force, but on, a, on the society we live in. Can you tell me, in terms of stop and search, now, there's been some discussion of stop and search. Look, I should 
make this clear, there's nothing, not something I normally have to emphasize. I'm not a fan of Theresa May. Uh, when she uh, resigned crying, I suggested, you know, she was crying over her own job, but she didn't cry over the over Windrush scandal and, uh, you know, her, her racism and Home Secretary Prime Minister, et cetera. But the point I was actually going to make is even she as Home Secretary pointed out the racist use of stop and search by the police force. In fact, and again, not words like she's lightly, the only mainstream politician in a position of power who's actually done so, uh, which again is astonishing, but also a damning indictment of pretty much the entire political establishment in the country. Can you tell me your own view? Because stop and search, if you look at the figures, uh, if you're black, you're just far more likely to be stopped and searched in possession of drugs. The government's own statistics show black people are less likely to take drugs than white people. That's just statistical, that's, that's a fact. Um, but also if... Black people are found with possession of drugs. They're more likely to be charged than a white person with possession of drugs as well. What's your own thoughts on stop and search and your own experiences of kind of how it was used by the Metropolitan Police? I mean, I, 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 I talk about this. Well, I wrote, sorry, I write about it in the book. Uh, um, quite a few chapters um, touch on uh, stop and search. And even in my own experience, I was used as a buffer to stop black people at the airport. That was one of the um, um, sound counts against the Metropolitan Police using me a black officer to stop other black and Asian people because we had the same color skin. That is racist. A court said that's racist. And again, still no apology. But it's, you know, it's bigger than me. It's beyond me. What the police don't understand, and I've written several articles publicly about this with regard to stop and search, is the impact it has, not just, not just on the young black boy or black girl on the streets, you know, around the country, um, but their families and friends as well. I once um, was on a um, live radio station with a well-known presenter and I said to him, you know, he knows he's a white guy. His son's black, mixed race. I said to him, you know, your son who you know is a good, a good kid. He comes home and says, dad, I've been stopped and searched for the eighth time. And you know, I'm a good uh, kid, dad. Um, I don't get in trouble. And the police have found nothing. What do you say to him with regards to trust in the police? What do you say when your kid's been stopped eight times just for existing, just for being black, you know, for having brown skin? What do you say? He didn't say nothing. You know, he had no answer. And that's because, you know, there is no answer. You know, stop and search. Police say it's a vital tool. But why, is there, why are the statistics so off? You know, black people, we are we are mixed race people. We are a small percentage. There's 3% in England and Wales um, of the population. But yet we account for such a huge uh, percentage um, of stop and search uh, stuff. And also when it comes to um, other legislation, black people and Asian people are disproportionately represented. In terms of, look, when we talk about, people like myself write about the Metropolitan if you talk about a systemic issue, so it's the way the institution is run, the practice is ingrained within it. Um, so, you you know, when people say, well, are you saying all bad, you know, all police officers are bad? That's not what systemic problems mean. You can have well-intentioned people in a institution yeah. which is riddled with systemic racism, homophobia, corruption, misogyny, and so on. Is it, do you think, that notwithstanding the case that disproportionately the Metropolitan Police does attract perhaps certain types of people? Totally. Um, again, I don't want to reiterate all the news, but there was a young guy, a, a, a young recruit recently, um, who had uh, far, far right uh, connections. I think he was found guilty and sent to prison. You know, what is attracting uh, these uh, kind of people to the Metropolitan Police? You know, I always say this, again, don't want to make it about individuals, but leadership is top down. You know, where does the leadership of the Met, for example, and other police forces, the other chief constables around the country saying, you know what, we will not tolerate this. We don't accept sexism, racism, um, homophobia, zero tolerance. 
with a chief, with a, you know, with a chest dog saying, you know what, what happened to Kevin Maxwell was unfair. It shouldn't have happened. And I apologize. You know, when I took the police force to an employment tribunal, I was the only police officer saying uh, that racism, homophobia and sexism was a problem um, in the police force. 33 officers sat in front of me to say the opposite. 33 officers took the time off to come and say the opposite to what I was saying, um, a black gay man, regards to my lived experience. Where's all the police officers who have come out in support of me to say, you know what, what happened to Kevin Maxwell was not good. Um, we do not tolerate uh, racism and homophobia and sexism. Where are these people? You know, we know there's good cops. We know there's good people. I believe I had the right intention, you know, to join the police to save the communities of Manchester and London. Um, but people like me are, uh, you know, there's not enough of us, you know, there's more of um, them as such, you know, and the problem is, again, is, um, you know, people acquiesce, you know, when, as we see, you know, uh, you know, the whole George Floyd, um, um, you know, murder, horrific incident, you know, when the officer was killing George, you know, those other three good cops, what were they doing to stop him? Mm, exactly. There's lots of good cops out there who do nothing to stop the bad cops. Exactly. I mean, it's striking. Uh, Cressida Dick uh, complained she was outraged at the line of duty over corruption portrayal. She says it, it fails in the presentation of uh, policing. I'm going to talk about Cressida Dick and Metz Williams later on in terms of the history of, of the police. But I'm just interested because we've seen, we've got a poll of just Londoners. Poll of Londoners, do you think, this is from Stats for Lefties, do you follow them on Twitter, Lefty Stats? Poll of Londoners, do you think Cressida Dick is doing well or badly as Metropolitan Police? Well, 22%. Oh, I'd love to meet them and hear their case. But anyway, badly, 52%. She's got a minus rating of 30 points. I'm just interested. And again, I do think it's important to just keep circling back to systemic because it's very easy to go, the head of the police is the problem, Cressida Dick. Remove her, put someone else in place, everything's fine. Not how these systemic problems work. Nonetheless, she does have a history, to say the least. That she uh, most notoriously uh, was in charge of the operation, which led to the shooting in the head seven times of John Charles de Menendez, an innocent Brazilian electrician. The police force lied and lied and lied again about John Charles de Menendez after they killed him, um, in order to demonise and defame him uh, when you know claiming all sorts of. You know, he he was aggressive, he was on drugs, he jumped the barrier, he's wearing a massive coat, which could be hiding a suicide vest, all lies. I mean, that is just, I mean, just interested in the context of your experiences. What is your own take, just finally, on the Met and those number 10 parties? Because you've seen the Met come down hard on people, disproportionately black people, disproportionately people who are poor, people who are powerless not cracking down very heavily on the people at the top of the society, and they have intervened in a way which has very conveniently helped. From your own experiences of the Met, what's your own take on their approach to the number 10 rave scene? I mean, I'm not political, but obviously you've asked me a question. I mean, you know, I've read about it, um, you know, as the general public has, and, you know, what I've noted is that from the left and the right, Trust in the Met is low. You know, you've got politicians from both sides, people who've even surprised me, coming out to say, you know what, the Met has cocked up with this. There's no transparency. You know, we talk about corruption. You know, in my own case, um, which um, came out in evidence that documents were changed, you know, to um, be more favorable to the Metropolitan Police. This is a public organization changing documents. You know, it's, it's, 
it's wrong. I mean, it's, it's more than wrong. It's criminal. But yet no one's been held to account in my case. But, you know, for the, for the greater good, I hope that the truth comes out, um, you know, and we, and we really get to the bottom of it. You know, that sounds really like wishy-washy, but I'm someone who, if I don't know enough about it, I don't want to, you know, say an answer just to please people. But I don't know enough about how many parties there was. I, I know there's quite a few um, because they appear to be... Uh, well documented, but I was looked, um, listening to one of the um, former Lord um, Justices of the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom, and he was saying, um, I think just yesterday, that there's no reason whatsoever that um, the Cabinet Office report cannot be um, published, um, as it won't prejudice um, the police investigation. So when you've got one of our, like, um, you know, scholars of the um, of the of the High Court, the highest court in the land, saying that, why is the police, you know, you know, not allowing the report to be published in full? So that's, but that's for better people than me to answer. But with regards to the police, um, the Metropolitan Police and its future, you know, trust is a big issue. Um, accountability is a big issue. And, you know, for many people, uh, I don't like to be dramatic, but, you know, I just, I just find them a, an awful organisation. That's the truth. That's pretty sad to say. Kevin, it's been such an honour to have you with your insights. Such a courageous person. Uh, I think everyone who's listened to what you've said will recognise that. Um, and someone who's gone through a horrific ordeal. I don't think anyone can read your book, which I'm going to flash up again and tell everyone to go and buy, Forced Out, A Detective Story, Prejudice and Resilience. I don't think anyone could read that and possibly come to any other conclusion than a very damning one about the Metropolitan Police. But Kevin, it's such um, an honour. Thank you so, so much. Do obviously follow, look up Kevin Maxwell on, on Twitter, for example, and uh, and follow him there. But cheers, Kevin. Um, hope you hope you well, and I'll I'll, I'll see you because we live near each other, so I'm sure I'll see you soon. <laughs> Thanks, Owen. Take care. Cheers, Tom. What an honour to have such a brilliant guest with such a unique uh, insight into the Met. Uh, now, what we're going to do now, uh, I'm just going to shortly bring in uh, the brilliant Alistair Morgan, an incredible campaigner. Again, someone just so courageous. Uh, his brother, Daniel Morgan, was a private detective who was killed 35 years ago in 1987 in the car park of the Golden Lion pub in Sydenham in South London. Now, the Met previously said in 2011 that corrupt officers shielded the killers, while a panel found that a murder investigation that was probably solvable was drastically undermined. Five investigations, no one convicted after 35 years. Um, an independent panel into his death found the Met to be institutionally corrupt, and Cressida Dick was personally censured for obstructing the inquiry. The panel chair said the Met was responsible for decades of misleading statements about the level of corruption and failure. Now we're going to bring in Alistair to speak about this. Alistair, it's such an honour to have you. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm, I'm very well, thanks, uh, Owen, and thanks for having me on. It's a huge honour. Do you want to just tell, just tell us first about your brother? Tell, tell us your, you know, just paint a picture of him as a man, I suppose. Well, he was... He was uh, he, he he ended up really as a private investigator after he went he started off he went to agricultural college after school and then he went to Denmark and worked for a year or so then he came back to the UK and was a a travel uh, guide for for foreign tourists in in the United Kingdom and he was a pretty gregarious and uh, friendly kind of guy uh, and eventually anyway through a series of 
circumstances. He got a job as working for a private investigation company. And after a few years there, he started his own company. And he went into partnership eventually with a man called Jonathan Reese, who is uh, probably quite well known amongst people that are listening to this uh, program to this program but anyway it's a very it's a long story um owen and i i, I mean I, I i i don't want to kind of regurgitate the the history of of what went on i've done it so i've done it so many times even written a book about it and i suppose what i'm more interested in talking about is um the police and how how they handle this it's all been well documented in a in a, a 1250 page report by uh, the daniel morgan independent panel which you mentioned earlier and uh we i had 20 uh, i've had 35 years of dealing with this institution and most of it has been an absolute nightmare uh, I've encountered dishonesty, incompetence, bullying, my fam uh, lying, or, e or every possible uh, scenario I've been through with these people, and not just ordinary um, low-ranking officers, but right at the top. Uh, in particular, I mean, I've met Cressida Dick only once in my life. But I can say here, here that she did everything she could, right from even before the panel started, to slow down and obstruct the work of this panel. And it was such an important job because uh, the, the panel, I mean, because there'd been five investigations, an inquest. We'd had a two-year battle, a disclosure battle with the Metropolitan Police, and then an eight eight-year-long investigation, mm -hmm. a, a panel investigation into the murder and uh, into the police's handling of the murder, I'm sorry. And so we've been really through the mill. And yet, even after 25 years of failure and corruption and lying, even after 25 years, they still tried to, uh, in particular, Cressida Dick, tried everything she could to, to delay and obstruct the work of the panel and that's the state we're in i mean i listened to kevin earlier and i thought yeah 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 i i can see exactly where he's coming from i mean i have a a, a different perspective but the same the same phenomena the lying the 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 uh, dishonesty the bullying i mean we were lied to and bullied and i mean one man who later became the the um director of investigation the first director of investigations at the at the ipcc the predecessor to this particular variation of police complaints authority he described me in an internal um internal memo or document as verging on paranoid after, this is after he had lied to me about the quality, total, totally misled me, my sister and my family about uh, 
the quality of the investigations, which is now well documented in detail by the panel, uh, and then goes on to smear me inside the organization that's been virtually paranoid, uh, verging on paranoid. And then this same man goes off to lead the independent uh, police complaints, uh, what was it again called? Commission. Yeah. Uh, so the, uh, what, what I'm trying to illustrate here is the, is the sort of scope of the corruption. You know, it permeates every facet of the organization this self-protective um yeah self-protective at any cost organization now, as you mentioned as you mentioned before so the inquiry found the metropolitan police institutionally corrupt so uh, just want to talk about you know in terms of long-term continuing failure of the political oversight of the police do you want to just talk about that and talk yeah, about I, 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 my brother's murder was 35 years ago. I mean, this is, you know, this has been going on for a long time. And as I told you, the, the, uh, the, the panel documents how the Metropolitan Police, the top leadership of the Metropolitan Police, Hampshire Police, and the Police Complaints Authority at that time were involved in a conspiracy to suppress allegations of police involvement in the murder. So the corruption was right at the very top of three organizations, you know, and that's that has only just it took 35 years to get that out. And I think, well, no wonder Cressida Dick didn't want uh, this panel to was trying to obstruct this panel. Uh, I, You know, when I think about it, it just makes me enraged to think that 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 the corruption in this organization is so deep-rooted. And this, this was 35 years ago, but as I said, the, the incident that I spoke about earlier, about being lied to and called paranoid by this um, officer, I mean, that was less than, it was in 2004, you know, this, this sort of thing. And I remember writing to the chair of the, um, of the people that, chose this guy to, to lead the um, uh, IPCC. And uh, they just said, oh, they have full confidence in him. Mm. They don't listen. You see people, I mean, I, I lobbied for decades and decades trying to tell people that we've got a serious problem here in the police, you know, corruption, lying, uh, allegations of uh, police involvement in murder, plural, plural allegations uh, uh, from different people and uh, the most abominable investigations that you can imagine. Absolutely disgusting. I mean, I can remember watching perjury taking place at the inquest. Uh, it just went on and on and on over. And still, and still it is. It's going on now, and we have the situation where the um, where Mopac and uh, Sadiq Khan, who is nominally in charge of the police, and of course Pretty Patel, from whom I'd expect nothing better anyway, but they they've done nothing at all to uh, uh, examine Cressida Dick on the allegation on the it's evidence allegations again and again and again how she obstructed 
this inquiry. She even wrecked the panel of inquiry at one point completely, and we had to start all over again because she was uh, in, engaged in private correspondence with the then chair of the panel, uh, a retired judge, suggesting that only he should be allowed to see certain documents and that the rest of the panel should be included. And this guy was going along with this, and then the panel found out about it, and they had to sack him. So a whole year had gone by. Uh, we'd had 25 years of it. A whole year had gone by, and then we had to start again, reconvening a different panel with a different chair. That was Cressida Dix doing. She delayed the onset of the panel by uh, uh, Theresa May, who actually started the panel, who actually ordered the panel in the first place, was waiting for a report on the collapse of a, of a prosecution into my brother's murder. And the police took... Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. A whole year to prepare this, and we were presented with this report by Cressida Dick mm. at the headquarters of the Crown Prosecution Service. Now, she gave us this flimsy 30-page report. My solicitor and I looked through it, and his comment was, his comment about this was that one of his assistants could have prepared that report in three weeks. Now, I was furious with uh, Cressida Dick at that point because we'd been, we'd been trying to get a judicial inquiry into this for nearly, for God knows how long, uh, eight, nine years at that point. And uh, I gave her, I then gave her a very, uh, how shall I say, powerful outline of what we'd been through and what we'd seen the police doing, senior officers, up to, right up to commissioner level. And she just sat there completely stony-faced. And uh, I just thought, I, I just, I didn't like her, you know, and, I, but I, and I've met God knows how many commissioners now. I've, I've been through about eight or nine. Uh, most of them have been bloody awful. But then it's not just them, it's the Home Office too. All, over all these years, even the, the new Labour Home Office was just absolutely useless. You know, it was just, uh, they, they, there's a, a lack of will, from, as, as Kevin pointed out earlier, from the top, the senior officers, in his particular circumstances, the senior officers um, uh, 
uh, wouldn't weren't doing anything to to stop the homophobia and the racism, and but the, then the Home Office just turned a deaf ear again to me to my family again and again and again. You know, we were dismissed after a quick phone call, but for, by the hope between from the Home Secretary to the Commissioner, oh, this is just nonsense. This family is talking nonsense. You know, so oh, I don't know. Um, uh, my entire family has been horribly traumatized by this um, experience and we wouldn't have survived if, if, if I don't think uh, mentally, if uh, we hadn't had a, a, an amazing solicitor, if we hadn't had an amazing solicitor who, who looked after us, uh, who did huge amounts of work for us for nothing, we couldn't afford you know, uh, paying a solicitor year after year after year, but he could see that something had gone very, very badly wrong, and he chose to uh, enter the fray for us. And, I mean, in that sense, despite all of the stuff that we've been through, we were very fortunate. Imagine if you, if you, if you, if you didn't have, a, for example, I've got a very supportive partner, and my family were completely behind me, my sister and my mother for years and years and years. Imagine if you don't have that. Also, I didn't have any, my child, my child, I have one child who's grown up. I didn't have the responsibility of, um, of, of uh, bringing up, looking after a child. Mm. Uh, and I had a partner who is who's been a, a rock all throughout mm. all these years. Now, if any of those facts, also I could work freelance. You know, mm. I had all of the, circumstances in my favor or if you like to be able to take on a thing like that and if you haven't if you're if you you know if you're disadvantaged in any of those areas you won't have a hope you haven't got a hope because our police complaint system is rotten uh the the home office i've found i mean apart it took me it took me 17 years to get a meeting with the home office for example 17 years and this is in a case where there'd been multiple allegations of police involvement in a, mm -hmm. in what was obviously a contract murder and uh, where a police officer from the original murder squad had taken over my brother's business with a partner who was a uh, um in broad daylight you know with a partner who was the chief one of the, one of the chief suspects in the murder oh no there's nothing going on no problem I mean, and this is a reflection of, I think, of our culture, British culture, and it's now coming to the fore. It's now coming to the fore with this uh, business with Cressida Dick, with Cressida Dick and the party gate. You know, it's just a mess of monument. It's it's now reached a a mess of absolutely monumental proportions, in my view. The, the situation with uh, police credibility is so serious that something will have to be done. But the question is, and it's always been in my experience over many years, the political will to do it, mm -hmm. first of all. I mean, I have to say, I, I'm, I'm not a, a Tory by any stretch of the imagination, but Theresa May is the only politician that I... I well, no, not the only politician, that's not fair, but the only person in the Home Office who ever, ever
Oh, I think we've lost Alistair there, unless that's my connection. One second, I'm sure we will get him back. One second. Uh, I will double check. We will work on getting Alistair back. He's just frozen there. Let's just see if we can return him. I mean, that's such an incredible, uh, as we can say, another very powerful testimony. What Alistair's been through, just as we wait for him to return, hopefully, astonishing what someone like Alice has gone through. 35 years of battling for truth and justice. And I think the absolute fundamental point he's making there is he was very lucky to have a solicitor who was very supportive. Uh, he was very lucky to have family. He was able to, because of his own circumstances, but so many people are denied that. For so many people, that's simply not possible. You know, to be on the receiving end of wrongdoing by the Metropolitan Police and to fight back. I've interviewed so many people who've been on that receiving end and it's just not been possible for them to do anything. And for those who have, it's been a fundamental huge battle uh, because the police, and as I will talk about that over and over again, the police uh, will lie and cover up their wrongdoing they will work together, and we'll talk about this in terms of uh, the, kill, the the death of Ian Tomlinson. Uh, we'll talk about this in terms of, we know, with other other police forces, most notoriously Hillsborough, the Battle of Orgreave, where you will get a conspiracy by police officers going up to the very top, uh, often uh, in, in many of these cases, uh, where they will work together and we will get fed to the British media things which are simply not true. In the case of Hillsborough, for example, about Liverpool fans urinating on the dead. Now, I know that wasn't the Metropolitan Police, and it's very important, as we've emphasised, this is not specific to the Met. We saw that with Augury, this idea, which the BBC conspired with, by the way, and some Met officers were there. Some of the Met were, were posted uh, uh, to, for example, uh, the, to, to Orgreave and other sites of the minor strike, uh, where the BBC put the tape in a different order in order to make it look like the miners had charged at the police when it was the police who charged at the miners. Now, while we wait, we'll see if we can reconnect uh, with Alistair, uh, though we've obviously spoken in great detail um, about his particular case. Just gonna just going to talk about because I've had this a lot on social media, criticising the Metropolitan Police, but, you know, their corruption, their racism, their misogyny. Now, what I keep getting at me, so this is someone called Classified. Hi -Oh, I've got, I'm just using this as an example because I've got so many of this. Hi, Owen, are you able to confirm whether or not this was the same Metropolitan Police Service who investigated, arrested and charged and supported the prosecution which led to the conviction of the men who assaulted you? Now, for those who don't know, back in August 2019, it was a culmination of a systematic campaign of far-right harassment being repeatedly mobbed in the street by supporters of Tommy Robinson, people wearing MAGA hats, uh, extremely homophobic, yelling, um, Jonesy is a homo, rent boy, uh, spat at me in the face at, um, when I was trying to leave a demonstration, members of the Democratic Football Lads, uh, Alliance, uh, spat me in the face, tried to punch me repeatedly, took pictures of me in pods, put threatening videos online, uh, graffiti saying, hang going Jones. They put the Guardian right, just to <laughs> make clear to any other local Owen Jones, they didn't mean them. Uh, uh, another guy suspended sentence after he sent me a uh, message saying that I, uh, you know, should have bullets in my brain along with 
uh, my family. It was a chap in Northern Ireland, lovely guy. Uh, uh, repeat, just repeated death threats, threats of violence. Um, online, uh, far right activists charged the Guardian newspaper demanding to see me. Uh, so it was clearly going in one particular direction. And on my birthday in August 2019, I was jumped by a neo-Nazi who was later found to have a house full of far-right extremist material, COM-18, um, uh, for example, uh, SS flags, <laughs> lovely guy, Nazi death heads. Yeah, I mean, he's, he said he was a hoarder <laughs> in the trial. Just like hoarding things. Um, he was, you know, repeatedly convicted football hooligan. Um, his two accomplices were also Chelsea football hooligans. Not all Chelsea fans, but these were Chelsea football hooligans of a certain type. Now, uh, people say, well, you know, because he ended up going to prison for two years, eight months. I didn't support his imprisonment because I don't think incarceration is a solution to far-right violence or indeed most other things. Uh, but nonetheless, the police, those officers, I'm very grateful for. They did a very good job. Now, I've not spoken about this publicly because there needs a very, very big caveat, which I haven't spoken about publicly because the two main officers who were later allocated to the case were very good, very supportive, um, and uh, apologized to me for what initially happened. Because what initially happened after we'd been charged by uh, a far-right extremist and his two accomplices, uh, he was convicted for aggravated assault, homophobic and far-right extremism uh, being the motivations that the court found. The police who turned on the scene were horrific. Like it was, it was beyond a joke what they did. Aggressive, um, you know, completely contemptuous. We were identifying people we thought were the people who charged us. They refused to speak to them. I mean, it was ludicrous. We tried to have a conversation with them. And they, the, I mean, other than telling us to F off, and sticking two fingers up in our you know, faces, which is essentially what they did. I, 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 was, I was angrier on that night, more upset about the police response than I was about being karate kicked to the ground and punched by far-right extremists. That's how bad it was. Now, the only reason in the end the Met belatedly even got in touch two days later, which is what happened, is because I did uh, a tweet thread about it, which went viral about being assaulted. Now, I raised that because uh, two things. Um, firstly, uh, um, when I've spoken to other victims, not least of racism, people of colour, and also homophobic assaults, let me just put this bluntly. Their treatment has been varied, varied to say the least. And in other cases, and I've had a recent case where Someone got in touch with me, a woman who suffered a horrific violent assault by a man. The police, awful, awful treatment of that woman. Uh, but they then actually investigated when I retweeted her thread on Twitter. So it turns out that often, and this has been documented, Amelia Gentleman, brilliant Guardian journalist who exposed the Winra scandal, police investigating and suddenly taking something seriously when it, there's public attention brought to it and they think they're at risk of embarrassment. So I'm thirsty. But the other point I was going to make, and I'll just bring up my response to this, because uh, I said, sorry, am I expected to show deference to the Metropolitan Police and ignore their countless scandals? Because in my case, they did what they're supposed to do in exchange for the vast sums of public money they're given. Is this a, is this a joke? I mean, ludicrous. Over three billion pounds of public money is given to the Metropolitan Police every year. They're not a charity. They're not doing you a favor when they actually do what their job description tells them to do. They're doing what they're supposed to do in every single case. The idea you can't criticize the Metropolitan Police riddled with corruption, with racism, misogyny, and homophobia. And I'm about to detail a potted history of the Met and other police forces, because in your case, they did their job. 
is a farce. Ludicrous. And, and, and the people on social media making this point, I think some of them are just serving or former police officers. The idea that you should be forever in gratitude of an entire police service because they did what they were supposed to do in your particular case, rather than, you know, is that, is that this is a big honour. Oh, what a huge honour that you, you know, and as I said, I'm personally grateful for the officers themselves, personally very grateful for what they did. But I am not grateful for a service which is guilty on a massive scale of huge systemic corruption, racism, misogyny, homophobia, and a whole a classism and a whole range of other grievous offences. Now, that firstly is one point I wanted to make. I think, by the way, unfortunately, Alistair won't be able to return because they texted with a laptop issue. So instead, what we're going to do, he was brilliant. I think we've got a real sense of what he went through. What we're going to do instead is we're going to talk about the Metropolitan Police and its and its history, the history of uh, because and this is really important because we need to put this in the historical context. It was actually quite interesting. Ed Davey, the Lib Dem leader, by the way, he said a stitch up between the Met leadership and Number Ten will damage our politics for generations, and it looks like it's happening right in front of our eyes. The Lib the Lib Dem leader can say this. No, no offense. Well, I mean, I was going to say no offense to the Dems, but they're not not exactly renowned for sticking it to the establishment. Um, and you know, the, 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 again, the history of the Lib Dems, I think, uh, speaks for itself. Now, the Metropolitan Police. This is really interesting. If we go back to 1918, 1919, this is a. I did my university dissertation on the police strikes of 1918 to 1919. Before then, before 1918, the state made a big, big mistake, a big error, because they they didn't pay the Met Police properly. And so in that period, uh, the Met Police Force uh, and other police forces across the country were paid a derisory sum of money. Uh, they often went hungry and they did more than one job. Um, and that's because at the same time, during the war, you got other workers organising through trade unions in order to improve their wages and terms and conditions, often with success and before the World War One, but the police were banned from doing so. So then the National Union of Prison Police Officers were set up, and in 1918, the Metropolitan Police went on strike en masse. The whole police force went on strike. And that caused panic amongst the state, because this was not long after the Russian Revolution. There were strikes and insurgencies taking place across the country, the army was mutinying after World War One. There were huge mutinies taking place. And they thought to themselves, oh, my word, if the Metropolitan Police goes on strike, then we have no means to suppress these other rebellions or, you know, we could be overwhelmed by revolution. And so what happened as a consequence is the Police Federation was set up as a top-down kind of bosses union. The National Union of Prison Police Officers was banned. They went on strike against that again in 1919, some police officers, most famously in Liverpool, uh, and they were all kicked out of the police force. Some of them uh, were near to their pensions. They were old. They had their pensions scrapped uh, and were uh, suffered terrible hardship as a consequence. And the state didn't make the same mistake again. So they, they paid the police higher wages uh, the many other workers and improved their terms and conditions. And during the general strike of 1926, the Metropolitan Police uh, returned the favour by uh, organising to help suppress the general strike uh, of 1926. Now, again, in the 1970s, again, you saw police salaries didn't go down to where they were before. But Margaret Thatcher, unlike other public sector workers, she hiked the salaries of the police force, ensuring, of course, their loyalty.
Now, in terms of other examples of grievous wrongdoing, let's think about Blair Peach. Blair Peach was a New Zealand teacher, an anti-fascist, an anti-racist, who was killed at an anti-racism demonstration in London in 1979. An investigation later found he'd been killed by a member of the special patrol group. Other officers obstructed the investigation with a conspiracy of silence. This, of course, is a recurring theme in the history of the Metropolitan Police Force. Let's talk, of course, about Stephen Lawrence. Stephen Lawrence, the young black teenager who was murdered, the Metropolitan Police catastrophically mishandled the murder investigation. There was alleged corruption, allegations. The father of one of the killers paid one of the chief investigators. These were allegations. And then the police sent an undercover officer to spy on the justice campaign led by his parents. Now, again, the Metropolitan Police here were found by an inquiry to be institutionally racist. Let's talk about undercover police officers. I've interviewed several women who had relationships with undercover police officers who had fake identities and made up who they were. Some of them were together for, for, for years. One of them at least had a child. Here's an example of one, Mark Kennedy. Mark Kennedy pretended to be a left-wing activist, infiltrated these groups, had a relationship with a woman. Again, I mean, one, one of those women said it was like being raped by the state. We've talked here about the murder of Daniel Morgan, a private investigator killed with an accident in a pub car park. And again, inquiry found the Metropolitan Police was guilty of institutional corruption in its concealing and denials in the failures of their investigations. Let's talk about John Charles de Menendez, a Brazilian electrician. And this is such a striking case. Such a striking case. And a Brazilian electrician. Now, this was not long after 7-7, in which suicide bombers detonated themselves on the London Underground, killing dozens of people. And there was another abortive suicide attack. There was a manhunt for the sus suspects. Domenez, who was on his way, by the way, to fix a broken fire alarm on the other side of London, he looked nothing, nothing, nothing like any of those suspects. Nothing. But the plainclothes officers decided otherwise. They followed him as he calmly picked up a free paper at Stockwell Station, used his Oyster card, got on a train, and then was shot in the head seven times in front of passengers who were clearly horrified and terrified, shot in the head seven times. The Met then waged a dirty campaign against this innocent man, this innocent Brazilian electrician who they killed. They claimed he was a terror suspect. No, he wasn't. That he'd vaulted the barrier. No, he didn't. Lots of people still think this, by the way. I bet some of you, that's the first time you heard that, that he didn't, he didn't jump the barrier. Some people thought he was terrified by being uh, followed by the Metropolitan Police and therefore, uh, you know, that that was somehow led to the events of being shot. He didn't vault the, the, the barrier at all. That he was high on drugs? No, he wasn't. That he'd acted aggressively? No, he hadn't. They issued a picture showing he, to try and show he did look a bit like one of the suspects. They altered the image to make it look like he did. Who was in charge of the operation? Cressida Dick. Lies after lies after lies after lies. Ian Tomlinson. I'm going to bring this up, this disgusting um, splash from the Evening Standard. Police pelted with bricks as they helped dying man. Heart attack victim found in alleyway. Riot officers clear out city camp camp. Yeah, it, it, this this was again, and this shows often how the media work hand in hand. Too much, too much of the media work hand in hand. They did this over Hillsborough, of course, with the sun, uh, defaming uh, the dead and the traumatized survivors of Hillsborough. Uh, they Ian Tomlinson uh, was a homeless vendor 
He wasn't part of the protest taking place at the time against G20. And he was walking. And then he was just whacked by a police officer for nothing and fell to the ground. He later he died. An inquest found it was an unlawful killing. But what the police did is disseminate a load of lies that he'd, he'd had a heart attack and the police tried to help him, but they were being pelted with bricks by, um, by those uh, protesters around. Now, it should be clear that a jury later cleared the police officer involved. An inquest found it was an unlawful killing. Um, the fact the Met police institutionally just, just tried to lie, ways that, again, lie after lie, and the only reason these lies were found to be lies was because video footage came out which showed exactly what actually happened. We can talk about the fact that black Londoners are not only several times more likely to be stopped and searched on suspicion of possessing drugs, but several times more likely to be charged as well. Let's talk about the homophobia, which I've mentioned, Stephen Paul. Now, MPs, several of them demanded the Met Police have an inquiry into institutional homophobia, which again, relatives of those who were killed, this was the so-called grinder killer. He drugged gay men um, and, and raped them and left their dead bodies uh, and, 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 you know, in, in a churchyard. And the police failed. And the allegations are it's because the police just thought this was a kind of lifestyle consequence of, of gay men. You know, let's talk about the fact that in the past four years, 2,000 officers have been uh, accused of misconduct for the last four years, including sexual assault, rape, child sex offenders. But just one third of guilty workers have been sacked in cases where misconduct complaints have been upheld. Of course, again, notoriously, the fact that the police attacked the vigil of Sarah Everard, compare and contrast their treatment of the vigil to the parting in number 10. Um, and that was, of course, after Sarah Everard had been murdered by a serving Metropolitan Police Force who used the powers granted to the police under lockdown measures. What of Nicole Smallman and Bibber Henry? Henry? Nicole Smallman, Bibber Henry, two black sisters who went missing and who were murdered, which the Independent Office for Police Conduct condemned the Met for failing the family, who found the two women after organising their own search party, and they, they failed to follow procedure. Two of their own officers, of course, took pictures of dead bodies to share. Now, we could go on. We could go on. This is an institutional, institutional problem in the Metropolitan Police which is why when a Tory insider at the beginning of December, after the mayor again refused to conduct an investigation into number 10 Christmas parties at this time, a Tory insider told a right-wing newspaper, I see Cressida is returning the favour for not being sacked. Not being sacked, of course. I mean, there's a whole range of reasons why Cressida Dick should be sacked. Corruption, though. Let's talk about the mayor. If we talk about the mayor, corruption racism, misogyny, homophobia, attacking protests and vigils, but defending the government and the powerful. And there's a, sta there's a statement, actually, which always rests in my head. And that is when Chief Inspector Ian Kibblewhite of Enfield Police said in 2012, he was talking about saying this to gang members in London. It's a very revealing comment. You might have 100 people in your gang. We have 30,000 people in our gang. It's called the Metropolitan Police. And you know what? That's exactly how a lot of police officers see themselves, a gang. We're the biggest gang around here. Is that what you want from a police force? But that, this is an institutional issue. And I do think we need a wide-ranging conversation about the whole nature and basis of policing and how it works 
and how it operates. But just look at that history. Look at that. And that charge sheet is a fraction of, I could, I mean, we would be here for days if I was just listing. So when people say you should be grateful to the Metropolitan Police for doing X, Y, or Z, or helping in these particularly in these particular cases, though they're a charity, are just doing this off their own back rather than being paid huge amounts of public money in order to do what their job is supposedly to, to do, whilst being guilty of all these horrific offences. That is why it's a nonsense. And that is why it's so important that we talk about the institutional corruption in so many different ways of the Metropolitan Police. Now, there's a couple of other things I'm just going to end up with. I'm going to talk about just in terms of where we're at with the political situation, because obviously the Tories are embroiled in what is, I, I suppose, I, I, to be honest, the biggest scandal since World War II. I think people would say, well, don't you think the Suez invasion was a scandal? What I mean by that is it's a scandal involving just the personal character of the prime minister and his and many of his key officials. It, it's pretty unique. Now, the poll, obviously Labour shot ahead, as you'd expect, because the Conservatives essentially doused themselves with petrol and set themselves on fire. Lots of people who obviously are big cheerleaders of Keir Starmer think this is something down to what Keir Starmer's done. Obviously, Keir Starmer is not someone who, I mean, what what do people think Keir Starmer did in in these circumstances? Uh, I mean, there's a mass, you know, an opposition didn't need to exist for people to be angry with the Conservatives. I think what's disturbing is... In, and this is in one poll, but it's also happened in another poll. Labour's leaders halved from 10 points to five points um, in the space of, a, of, in this case, two weeks. The other was the case of a, of a week. Now, a five-point lead is a huge improvement on what Labour was until this whole scandal broke. I mean, the Tories were enjoying 10-point leads after tens of thousands of avoidable deaths, social calamity, multiple scandals, health secretary, we could go on. Um, you know, the, the the decorating of the number 10 flat, like lots of scandals, uh, PPE corruption, we could go on, there were lots. People queue up, do you remember four courts, uh, petrol shortages, uh, cost of living crisis, there were a lot of reasons. Now, a five-point lead, other polls, you know, there's another poll which has a bigger lead, but the direction of travel is not good because you should expect, this is, as I said, the biggest scandal of its type in modern times. And I think the problem there is Labour are just banking on not offering a clear, inspiring vision and people will just be so angry with the terrible behaviour of the Conservatives it will all fall into their lap. Maybe if this carries on, maybe it will. I mean, it's a gamble, Let's but let's put it bluntly. I think the problem is if you've only got polls showing five-point leads at the height of scandal, when Boris Johnson, most people want him to resign, the polling shows a huge majority want Boris Johnson out, Boris Johnson obviously a deceitful um, leader of a deeply corrupt administration. They want him out. Um, and and yet, Labour is not chalking up a significant lead of a sort you would expect, given these horrific circumstances. And the danger is, if it's already, we're talking about leads being halved in a, in a week or two, what's going to happen if people just get bored of this and this leaves the headlines? Which is why I do think it's important that Keir Starmer offers an inspiring alternative for Labour rather than expecting all of this to fall into his lap. And, you know, Keir Starmer's cheerleaders on Twitter who, I'm sorry, not all Keir Starmer's cheerleaders, some of my best, I've got close friends who uh, who tell me to stop being horrible to Keir Starmer and they obviously like him. Not a lot of my friends, but some of them. Um, and... Um, 
but they are some of the most tedious people on the internet, the the ultra stands, if you like, um, who think that um, you can't talk about the role of the media in terms of Labour's disastrous result in 2019, uh, but uh, because that's le- that's just trying to find excuses. But if uh, but a few left wing Twitter users uh, are capable of bringing down Keir Starmer by being critical about him on social media, again. I, you know, when the polling improved, their view was that this was somehow down to Keir Starmer, I thought was delusional. Now, believe it or not, I won the Conservatives out at all costs. I will vote Labour in the next election. Some people on the left think that's ridiculous. I've always voted for Labour under every single leader in my lifetime. That included when Tony Blair was leader. I'm sure some people will find that ridiculous or get angry about it. I'm a Labour guy. I want Labour in. I want the Tories out. But I want Labour to offer an inspiring alternative that resonates with people. And clearly, if we're not seeing huge leads for the Labour Party in this particular moment, that's a problem because going into a general election, normal in normal times, you see a swing towards the government. That didn't happen in 2017, most notably, but that's because Labour offered policies which were very popular with people and hadn't been heard for a very long time. Um, that's what the polling said afterwards. It wasn't about Brexit. Only 7% of people voted Labour in that election, according to the polling, because of Brexit. It was because of, for example, the policies like taxation, public ownership, which were very popular with people. Will Keir Starmer's Labour offer some new, exciting, popular prospectus in a general election? I'm sceptical, to be honest. A bit sceptical, but we will see. Um, but that's what they have to do. They can't just expect this to fall into the lap, because if you're already seeing swings towards the Conservatives in this particular moment... That is disturbing. Right. That's enough for me. We've had two brilliant guests who've shown, really shone a light into what we should be talking about, which is the institutional nature of the Metropolitan uh, Police. And I'm in awe of their courage and their resilience. But there's so many others like them, like those women who had relationships with undercover police officers who were acting under false pretenses, like particularly young black men who are harassed and violated by the police, like those families who are uh, of people who've been killed in police custody. More broadly, the families, of course, of the Hillsborough um, families, uh, sorry, the families of the Hillsborough dead uh, who died, the the now 97 who died at Hillsborough. Uh, The miners at Orgreave and elsewhere. My dad was at Orgreave just before the uh, charge happened and always told me in vivid detail what it was like, horrific. Um, you know, the the women who've been victims of survivors of sexual violence at the hands of police officers. I'm in awe of all these people, but we do need a much more profound talk about the nature of policing, which is what this should uh, bring on to. Now, that's enough for me. I'm going to go and write my book so I can get my book out of the way and focus on things like this channel. But um, I hugely, hugely appreciate um, everyone, uh, David Barrett, Tad Campbell, Stephen Calder, thank you so much for your support. Thanks for everyone who's tuning in. Uh, once again, do support the channel by clicking like and subscribe. Um, and also, uh, you support us on patreon.com forward slash That's how we keep the show on the road. Um, and do listen to the podcast and download and spread the word. Whew. Sick of my voice. Uh, but again, thanks so much to Alistair and Kevin. And thanks so much to all of you. Lots of love. And I will see you all very, very soon.
When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.